0: Well, simply put, faithfulness is what Jesus wants. Faithfulness to endure, to just keep going, to stay on the same course, the same track, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, doing good to everyone as the Lord gives you opportunity. Just be faithful. By the end of this passage, we understand that the opposite of faithfulness brings terrible judgment and condemnation from God. Faithfulness is simple enough conceptually to understand, but to try to find it in the real world, it's it's elusive, isn't it? Proverbs 20 verse 6 says, many a man professes his own steadfast love But a faithful man, who can find? All the single ladies here said amen. Faithful man, who who can find? It is is elusive. Lots of people can profess, oh, hey, I'm, I'm full of steadfast love. But in reality, who is known as faithful? In this fallen world, distraction is one of the main enemies to faithfulness. Try to get through a day at work, just getting done the things that you need to get done. And what is it that stops you? Nine times out of ten, it's distractions, right? Maybe it's other people coming. Maybe it's a phone ringing. Maybe it's a notification buzzing. Maybe it's an email popping in your inbox. Distractions, distractions. And it takes you off the path of faithfulness. We often get distracted with things that aren't really our things to worry about. We get caught up in things that are above our pay grade, so to speak. Psalm 131 speaks about this reality, but the the psalmist determining in humility that his heart won't be lifted up. It, It won't be raised too high. His eyes won't be lifted up to things too great and too wonderful for him. And he finds peace. Like a weaned child. And he urges us to hope in the Lord in this way. To free our lives from distractions. What belongs to the Lord, leave to the Lord. What belongs to other people, leave to them. And be content with what the Lord has put in front of you. More than just finding peace. Faithful productivity depends on us living ignoring distractions, focusing on staying in the lane that the Lord has given to us. This is really important for us because we all have need of faithfulness, right? As soon as you start talking about faithfulness, fidelity, character, enduring in long, hard Christian obedience, all of us immediately, if you're a believer, you recognize that's what I want, but you also recognize I feel really weak. And even talking about that, I'm immediately aware of the things in me that would work against that, and the ways that I've already fallen short of that, and frankly, some things in me that are scary. Because if they took over, would derail me. Jesus wants to help us walk in faithfulness. So he's going to tell us here in Matthew 24 what it's going to look like for us to drive, to stay in our lane. First of all, he's going to describe for us As you stay in your lane, here's the things that are all going on around you. So you don't have to worry about them. I'm going to tell you what it all is going to be happening around you. You just stay in your lane. Then he's going to tell us what's going to fuel us. Where do we get gas to keep the car going so we can go in our lane? And then finally, he's going to round it up by just saying, so what is a faithful journey going to look like in the day by day? So first of all, he wants to address the context in which we must stay faithful. He says this, you must stay faithful. You must stay faithful in a context of craziness. Like, it's crazy. The world is crazy. It's. Uh, <laughs> Jesus is. Jesus, I mean, this is no surprise. Jesus is more helpful than me. Um, Stace and I, we, uh, a, a little while ago, had an opportunity as part of some counseling that we were doing to uh, go to a horse farm. It's not a. F- Farm where they make horses. I don't think it's it's not that kind, or harvest horses for that matter. It's a farm where they have horses, so they call it a horse farm. I don't understand, but anyway, we go and it's and they use it for counseling, team building, exercise, all these kinds of things. And so uh, this one particular exercise, we are uh, we're in the arena and uh, they've set up an obstacle course around the whole arena. So they've got all kinds of things that you can trip over and uh, hurt yourself and all those kinds of things. And then uh, you have to walk through it, or at least one of you has to walk through it. And the only trick is you have a blindfold on while you're doing it, and uh, also you're leading a horse, which is like about 83 times the size of you, okay? So uh, you have to lead this horse by the thing and and weave your way through the whole obstacle course, and the only way you can do it is your spouse is on the other side of the arena yelling instructions to you. (laughs) So here's my wife winding her way through an obstacle course, her life and health dependent on me being able to communicate well. So we get to one point, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I, You know, she's made it. I'm, See, I'm doing good. She's made it. Uh, and, and she's made it so far, she's safe. She made it through a bunch of the obstacles. And then there's this one place where she has to walk from one corner of the arena all the way over to the other corner. Super easy. It's straight. There's no obstacles. So I just said, just go straight. Like, I don't know, like 100 paces, just go. That seems fine initially, right? But when you're leading like 8,000-pound horse with a blindfold on and you're walking, by the time you get about like 20, 30 paces in and you haven't heard any other communication, you're kind of like, wait a second, am I about to trip and die? Is it like, what's about to, like you're looking for something. But it was around this time that I decided to engage in a conversation with someone else who was there. (laughs) Suffice it to say, Stacy made it out okay. Uh, I didn't fare quite as well. But regardless, Jesus is better. He's wiser. He knows if I'm sending you on a journey and there's going to be obstacles, there's going to be things that can trip you up, hazards along the way, he's going to communicate to us ahead of time, here's what it's going to look like. This is what Jesus is describing in the first 28 verses. Verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away. That's Really important description, right? This is like in John's gospel. Remember when Nicodemus came and Nicodemus who was in the dark and so John makes his comment, he came by night. And he's symbolizing the darkness of the moment. Nicodemus is without understanding. When Judas, when Judas leaves Jesus on the night when he's gonna betray him and John says he went out and it was night. These are, these are loaded statements. When Jesus walks out of the temple, what was it that made the temple significant? It was this is where the presence of God is supposed to dwell, But God showed up in the temple, and what did the people do? They rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him. So God, once and for all, has left the building. This is a sign of judgment against the people. As Jesus leaves the building, which is empty, vacuous, devoid of God, his disciples come and point out to him the buildings of the temple. (laughs) Look how impressive the shell is. That's dangerous, right? That's what we just saw with the religious leaders. They're all about the shell. They're all about the external. When in reality, on the internal, there's nothing there. They'll clean the outside of the bowls and the cups, but on the inside, it's filthy as all get out. And and so here, they're like, wow, look at the building, the temple. And Jesus is reminding them, it's just a shell. It's a veneer. So what's going to happen? Eventually, the exterior will match the interior. The exterior will be destroyed as well. He answered them, you see all these, don't you? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Judgment will come because they've rejected the God who designed the building for him to live there. So verse 3, as they go out, they come to the Mount of Olives and the disciples come to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the, end of the end of the age? So they're like, man, something as cataclysmic as that has to indicate a changing of eras. So that must be then, in their minds, they're drawing these things together, that must mean this is the inauguration of the messianic age. It must be the end of the world if the temple is falling down. So, so when will all these ha- things happen? When is all this going to come about? What will be the sign that it's going to happen so that we're ready for it? Jesus answered them, verse 4, see that no one leads you astray. Um, there's going to be lots of opportunities for people to tell you all kinds of nonsense things about when the end will come, but don't let them lead you astray. 4, many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. A little structural note here again because in our in our English translations we see paragraphs built in the paragraphs themselves that you see in your English translations weren't there in the original so if you're trying to build out structure of a passage a lot of times authors will give you verbal clues repetitions of thought to try to indicate for us where the breaks, the logical breaks in the text are. And you notice here Jesus, in verse 4 and 5, is warning them about this promise that there's going to come false Christs, false messiahs, false deliverers. And then if you look all the way down in verses 23 to 28, you'll see that same warning repeated again. That's what we call an inclusio. It's bracketing this whole section. So what you're supposed to understand is from where Jesus is beginning to answer the disciples' question all the way to verse 28, he's describing one thing, one era. Here's what will characterize this era of waiting in between. It will be that there will be many people who will come and proclaim themselves to be false messiahs, false Christ. Now again, uh, the word doesn't mean there will be many who will come and say, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. That would be easy enough for people to see through, presumably, Uh, what it's implying is that uh, the word Christ is the same uh, word in the original as Messiah. It just means anointed one. It it means the one sent of God to deliver, the one who's going to bring the reign of God, the one who's going to save God's people. And so what he's saying is there's going to be many people who are going to come and offer deliverance. I've got the secret. I've got the way. Just come, follow me. Go this way. And the false prophets attach themselves to him and say, here's the one who's going to deliver us. Here's the one who's going to lead us to a better way. Here's the one who's going to help us to escape. Escape what? When when are people prone to look for saviors, for deliverers? Well, it's when they're suffering, right? Which is what characterizes everything in this era. Verse 6. Here's here's why you're going to be prone to look for false messiahs, for false Christs, for people that make big promises about peace and health and wealth. Because this is actually what's going on all around you. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. (laughs) It's hard to not be alarmed when you hear about the potential of war, right? Don't be alarmed. Four, here's why, this must take place. But the end is not yet. Notice that, the end is not yet. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Notice, these things can't happen in the span of like months, Jesus is talking about a long delay. He's implying that there's going to be a long period of time. These things will happen in various places. Verse 8, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. The the birth pains are a phrase that was associated with the inauguration, the beginning, the ushering in of the messianic age. (laughs) Jesus is saying, when you see wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, that's just life on planet Earth is just the beginning. Don't don't think that means the end is coming. That's not a sign of the end. That's a sign that you're waiting, that you're in the in-between. He continues in verse nine. Then, then, during that time, in those days, at that point, while all this is happening outside in the world, while, while creation is experiencing the chaos of the fall, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold you get you get the picture of what jesus is describing here in in nature in creation there's chaos Against the church, there is opposition. The chaos is coming against us so that there's persecution, there's opposition. We are being put to death. But even within the church, there are divisions. There's false prophets. There are are apostasies. The love of Christians for other Christians is growing cold. None of these things are unique to any one generation. All of these things are descriptive of the whole time when we're waiting for Christ to return. In creation, against the church, within the church, lawlessness will be increased. Wickedness will continue to grow. And sadly, inside the church, as wickedness abounds around us, many of us, hardened by the sin we see around us, will grow cold towards other believers and towards our Savior himself. But Jesus holds out a better word, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Just keep driving. You're driving and there's like a mudslide over here. There's an avalanche over here. There's rocks coming in. There's floods. There's, there's, there's people marching at you from either side. Stay in your lane and just keep driving. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Stay faithful. Stay in your lane, but don't huddle up. Stay on mission. Part of what it means to stay faithful is to keep preaching the gospel to every part of creation. At the end of all of that, when the gospel has gone forward to every part of creation, the end will come. Jesus goes on in verse 22. To describe what that will be, or, or to, to describe, rather, the end of those days. He says, if those days had not been cut short, th- those days, in verse 22, he's, he's referring to all of the days, from verse 3 all the way down to verse 28, this, this period of suffering and opposition and apostasy and chaos. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Literally, it just means no flesh. So, so that might even extend to the animal kingdom, just no flesh, no flesh. Nothing would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days, the period of suffering will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, his chosen ones, his loved ones, his redeemed ones. But that's not possible. So verse 25, he says, see, I've told you this beforehand. That serves at least two purposes, right? On the one hand, we should not be, we must not be surprised when all these things start happening, when the rocks start falling in around us. Don't be surprised. He told you this would happen. But the second reason why he points this out is this. So that as these things start to prove true, you will learn that Jesus is a true prophet who has spoken true words and can be trusted. So verse 26 again they say to you, Look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. They say, Look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's a strange proverb, right? It, it, means, it means something similar to the proverb about the lightning. The lightning which shines and even if it starts over here, it shoots over here and everyone sees it. Um, in the wilderness, an animal, animals will often wander off to die on their own. So an animal will wander off to die and even if the body is lost and no one knows it's there, you'll know it's there from a distance. You'll be able to see it. Why? Because there's vultures. The vultures find it. They're not going to miss it. They find it and they circle around it and the sight of the corpse becomes immediately obvious to anyone with eyes. The image is the same. What what you might be thinking, maybe I'll miss, you will not miss. It will be visible. There's nothing secret about the return of Jesus. Everything will be visible. But they're asking Jesus, right? Their, Their question, when will it be What will be the sign? The heart behind their question is they want to be prepared so that they don't miss it. And Jesus is clearing that up for them. You will not miss it. Everyone will see it. Well, well, what about the signs? Should we be looking for signs? Like what about things that are unprecedented? Like wars or... Apostasy or false prophets or false christs or divisions in the church or opposition to the church and persecution and martyrdom? What about earthquakes and famines and natural disasters natural disasters? What about climate change? Is there anything new under the sun? Jesus is saying, "Just keep driving. It's all distractions. It's all been done. It will all continue to come the context of your faithfulness is chaos. You just keep going. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel will be proclaimed to every part of creation. The context of your faithfulness is the beginnings of these birth pains. Now Jesus uses the phrase birth pains and uh, not that I know this from any firsthand hand authority but, or, or, or first-hand experience, but I understand that some birth pains are worse than others. Uh, what about if some birth pain is particularly sharp, particularly painful? And that's what Jesus is describing in verses 15 to 21. When he's answering the disciples' question about the destruction of the temple, a particularly sharp birth pain, what about really intense suffering, a really seemingly cataclysmic end times event? That must mean that the end is now, right? Jesus is going to address that. Verse 15. As one intense sign of the times... So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand is a fulfillment of the prophet, uh, prophet Daniel's words. And Luke, mercifully, writing to a Gentile audience, interprets this for us. He says, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, uh, when, when you see an imminent sign that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, get out. Verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There's there's good historical evidence to suggest that the Christians did this, by the way. In the the revolt that started in the war of 8066 that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070 when the the zealots revolted against the Roman rule, um, there's there's good indication historically that, that Christians saw the fulfillment of these words in their days and got out of Jerusalem. Many of them got out in time and were saved. They fled to the mountains because the destruction wouldn't just be in Jerusalem or in Judea, the surrounding region, but it would spread out beyond that. So they fled to the mountains. Verse 17, "...let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in the house." Let the one who's in the field not go back to take his cloak. This is like uh, the, the classic example. If your house is on fire and you're in the yard, do you go back? In, what do you go back in for, right? Jesus is like, don't go back in for anything. When you see the destruction is imminent, the rooftops in Jerusalem were flat. It, it was kind of like an extra patio or balcony, that kind of thing. So you could sit on there in the evenings. You could, you could have social time out there on the roof, this kind of thing. So the, Jesus is saying, if you're up on the roofs and you see the soldiers running by in the streets, Just run, leap from rooftop to rooftop. This is like Spider-Man kind of stuff, right? Like just just go, don't even get down. Get to the walls of the city as fast as you can and get out. If you're in the field, the fields are outside the city, don't go back into the city to get your stuff. Just get out of there, just run. Verse 19, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. See, Jesus envisions this flight taking place In a context and in a day when the Sabbath was still being practiced by God's people in Jerusalem. So that fleeing in winter obviously would be difficult. Fleeing with a newborn or fleeing while you're pregnant obviously would be difficult. Fleeing on a Sabbath would be difficult. Lots of the gates would already be closed into the city already. Markets would be closed. People wouldn't want you coming to try to buy supplies on that day. You would have to flee without supplies and without help or aid from other people around you. He's saying pray that it doesn't happen on that day when you need to go. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. The devastation of Jerusalem, if you, if you take time to read the historical accounts, are absolutely appalling and gut-wrenching. Uh, accounts of parents cannibalizing their own children in desperation while the city is in siege. Absolute destruction and horror inflicted mercilessly by the wrath of the Romans. There, were, um, there have been times of suffering, e- even frankly for the, for the Jewish people, but for, for any number of groups of people around the world throughout history. but this destruction was unparalleled, not in, in terms of the number of people who died, but the percentage. Even even leading up to the events in World War One and World War II, there were some who escaped. There's always a percentage who managed to get out, but the accounts of Jerusalem destroyed in 8070, no one escaped. Jesus says in verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All these things will start to happen. The birth pains, you'll start to see them within the first 40 years um, after Jesus Death, Opposition, earthquakes, apostasy, wars, destruction of the temple. All of it happens in the lifespan of the hearers and all of it becomes normative throughout the next 2,000 years. The window was opened in Jesus' day and the window remains open today. So the disciples are asking the question because they're seeing the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple and the eschatological end of all things, the return of Jesus all being bound up together. And what Jesus is doing in his answer is trying to Separate them in the disciples' mind, such that he can say all of these things. The suffering is going to continue throughout the entire time. The destruction of the temple is just one particularly sharp example of it. So in the midst of chaos, we've got our own chaos going on all around us now. Nothing like the destruction of Jerusalem, but it is chaos nonetheless. How are you doing at keeping your eyes on the road. If you're going to stay in your lane and live faithfully as a Christian, stay on mission. You need to know what your lane looks like and you need to know that you don't need to be distracted with the avalanches and the mudslides on your right and your left. It's above your pay grade. Distraction is the enemy of faithfulness. Jesus is calling you to stay on mission. This is... This is not something Jesus simply says. This is something Jesus himself will do, right? Think about what the next few days, Jesus is saying this, think about what the next few days are gonna look like for him from Wednesday to Friday when he will die. People will turn against him. There will be all kinds of hostility and opposition and persecution and the destruction of the temple. Not the building, but the temple where God and man dwell together in the body of Jesus. All of this will come in a matter of days. But Jesus will pray, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And he will faithfully go to the cross and suffer and die in our place. Jesus says, whatever's going on around you, you need to stay faithful. Chaos is the context for your faithfulness. That's where you must stay faithful. He also says this, you will stay faithful as you hope for the end. Here's how you you fuel your car for the drive. You will stay faithful as you hope for the end. Hoping for the end is, um, it's really important if you're gonna endure on a long drive. I, uh, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when GPS was new, and, uh, <laughs> and, and like the, the technology wasn't quite so good, and so if you were driving somewhere and it gave you an ETA, you're like, oh, this is great, I can beat it. Now it's pretty smart, it's like it knows how you drive, it knows the traffic. Anyway, it's, it's like it's weird because my kids, they just think, oh, like that's the time. So that's when we're going to be there. And if I do, ever don't put something into the GPS, they're like, well, how long? They don't know. They don't know how to endure a car ride. Even if it's only five minutes, they don't know because like they need to have an eye on a destination time. When are we going to get there? It's, it's key to enduring the process is having your eye on something. This is your experience at work, right? Like we all know what TGIF is. Oh, Friday's coming. Like I, I'm going to get through this week how just because I know Friday's coming. How do we get through engagement? Engagement just is terrible. I, I hated being engaged. It's because I know the wedding day is coming. How do you endure pregnancy? You picture the baby that you're going to give birth to. Jesus says, with your eye on the end, it will fuel. It will fuel your faithfulness now. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, describing the whole of those days, verses 1 to 28, after all the persecution, the tribulation, the chaos, after it's all said and done, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There's a way that you could read this that is um, um, metaphorical. It's representative of the powers, the political powers, the, the kings, the rulers of the nations, that's, that's a faithful reading of it. If you read Isaiah 13 or Isaiah 34, the same image was used often in Isaiah and the prophets to describe kingdoms being overthrown and powers that seemed insurmountable being toppled. So it could be political powers being overthrown, or it could be literally the actual moon and the stars. It's, it's unclear, but we do know there's no reason to believe it won't be the actual moon and stars because it's describing the end of all things. Then Verse 30, will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, all the nations of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Because Jesus already told us, The gospel of the kingdom has already gone to all the nations. But those who rejected now know exactly what it is that they're seeing when he appears. And if Jerusalem did not escape when they rejected Jesus, how much more will be the destruction of the nations who reject the offer of salvation? Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man. What's the sign of the Son of Man? The the word... um, in this context implies something like an ensign, like a banner, like an unfurled banner of war. Here come the armies of heaven. Jesus, who came once to save, will come again to judge. No longer will he appear as Christ crucified, gentle and lowly. Now he comes as Christ, the conqueror and commander, the king of heaven coming to earth to bring judgment. Verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They'll gather his elect, the salvation, the redemption of his people from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Our redemption and the judgment of the nations all together when the Son of Man appears with his war banner unfurled and the trumpets of the angels, the angelic armies sounding. The chaos that we know now, that surrounds us and opposes us, will come to an end. In a moment, and every eye will see Christ in his power and his glory. And it will be judgment or redemption. The disciples, the disciples are still saying, okay, great, but like, Jesus, when is that? When will that be? Verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All these things that Jesus is describing, that The earthquakes, the opposition, all of this will take place in this generation. The window is opened. The time is, well, frankly, it's any time. He's talking about a season and not a set date. He doesn't say when it closes. He just says when it's all said and done, then. Then the Son of Man will return. It's been 2,000 years. That's kind of discouraging, right? That's a long time. Be nice if it was now. At the same time, throughout those 2,000 years, Jesus' words have proven true. Every single generation and every single place of the planet, his prophecies have proven true and trustworthy. Trustworthy. The gospel is still going forward and people are still being saved. You were born. You are saved. You will now see your Redeemer. It is good. The end is still coming. Jesus can still be trusted. He's saying a future-oriented hope is what fuels our faithfulness now. And again, Jesus practices what he preaches. Jesus, looking towards the end, how is it that he will be faithful in view of the suffering that he's going to have to endure, Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. How did he run with endurance the race that was set before him? He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The hope of joy in the presence of God is what enabled Jesus to faithfully endure. His future-oriented hope fueled his faithfulness in the present, and that's what he's calling us to as well. If you're fearful of falling away, if you're fearful of not proving faithful, if you're fearful that you won't make it, have you contemplated your future? The return of Jesus like actually. In ways that are deliberate and meaningful. See, gas only fuels your car if you put it in your car, right? This hope is only ours as we meditate on it. What are, you, are you a creative person? Have you, tried, have you tried drawing? What is the return of Jesus going to look like? Are you are you a poet are you a person who's good with words have you written about it have you journaled it are you a social person do you talk to people about it have you have you engaged with the realities are are you um A technical person. Have you thought through what are the technical specifications of what is it going to be when Jesus returns? How can it be that every eye sees him? Have you tried to contemplate what will that moment actually be in a way that process that you have to process so that you can actually place your hope in something visible, something that you've engaged your heart and your mind in? This is what fuels our faithfulness now, contemplating our hope on that day. Jesus says you're going to need to be faithful in the midst of chaos. And the way to fuel that faithfulness is to contemplate your future hope. But he also wants to fill in the picture for us of what faithfulness is going to look like. If you're going to do it now, if you're going to be faithful now, what's it going to look like? Here's the last thing Jesus says in this passage. You do stay faithful. Here's how you do it. By staying watchful. By staying watchful. Um, If you're driving on the highway... And you don't want to get a ticket? (laughs) Um, Drive like like there's a cop around the corner. (laughs) Because there might be, right? If you want to be found faithful, stay watchful. Anticipate the end. The anticipation of the end is what fills this whole passage with energy. Verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one... Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Notice here, there is a moral oughtness to this. Could the Son have found out if he had asked? I don't know. The point is he didn't, because that's not the point. Concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the sun, and neither will you and neither should you. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 38, as in the days before the flood, what were they doing? What did those days look like? They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Normal human activity up until that moment. Then two men will be in the field doing normal day's labor. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill a normal day's labor like every other day. One will be taken and one left. Now now the point here isn't like, hey, make sure you're the one taken rather than the one left. That's kind of silly because in the illustrations here, it was the ones who were like the ones swept away in Noah's flood. The ones who were taken. You don't want to be those people right? Uh, Same same thing if you're in a field and a raiding army comes and takes someone, or if you're at the mill and you're one of the two women that gets taken by the raiding army, that's not like a sign of blessing, right? That's a terrible outcome. The the point isn't make sure you're ready so that you're taken. The the point is, it's going to come when you're not expecting it. When you're doing the everyday stuff of life, it will come as a surprise. Verse 42, therefore, stay awake, for you don't know. Because you don't know, be ready every day. You don't know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the point. Because you don't know when, be ready now. What does faithfulness look like? Jesus gives us a parable here in the remaining verses of this chapter, and then he's going to give us more parables in the next chapter as well to tell us what it looks like for us to be ready to live faithfully, watching in the meantime. Verse 45, he begins to describe a faithful and wise servant. Well, he's set over his household, he's been given responsibilities to give them their food at their proper time. And look at the blessing. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Just doing what his master told him. Don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to come up with anything Fancy. Just do what you've been given to do. Carry that out and you will be blessed. Truly I say to you, he'll set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour he does not know. Like, man, this this is taking a long time. Jesus didn't come yesterday. He didn't come the day before. He hasn't come in 2,000 years. I may as well just do what I want. Get drunk now. Drive like a drunkard now. Just live for my own pleasure now. Verse 51, he will cut him in pieces. That's superfluous, right? Like, Jesus didn't have to say that. He could have said he will put him with the hypocrites in that place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These details are included by Jesus for a reason. The wrath is severe, it is serious, it is graphic. It is supposed to frighten us. He will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. For some of us, this needs to be a call to repentance right now, recognizing that the wrath of God is coming. It is severe and it is harsh. And if you do not turn and trust in Jesus who died to take this wrath for you, then the wrath of God remains on you and one day will come fully. The only way to escape the wrath of God in that day is to trust the wrath of God was poured fully on Jesus in your place when he died. Turn from your sins and trust in him now. For the rest of us, for us who've trusted in Jesus This is a call to faithfulness in all of life. Here's what the New Testament scholar, Don Carson, says describing this passage. He says, in the human condition, in this this fallen world where we live, massive distress and normal life patterns coexist. Massive distress, normal life patterns that coexist. For the believer, the former, the stress points to the end. The latter, the normal life patterns warn of its unexpectedness. This is a, it's, it's like aging. One day you're, you're getting married and everybody's like, oh, you're so young, I can't believe you're getting married. And the next day your kids are teenagers and you feel too old to get out of bed in the morning. And you're like, where did that life go? It's, just, it's crazy. It's like you're just, you're just doing life one day after another after another. And then all of a sudden, the time is up. We've been through crazy things these past two years. Massive distress and upheaval in our society on so many different levels. And yet, church continues to go on. Some of you got puppies. Some of you got engaged. Some of you got married. Some of the same of you crazy ones had babies. You got new jobs. You changed jobs. Some of you retired. Some of us lost loved ones. With all the chaos around us, normal life patterns still continue to go on, day by day. You know what faithfulness doesn't mean? It doesn't mean, oh my gosh, this is the end, pack everything up, let's be radical and just sell all our stuff and move somewhere and live in a commune. Faithfulness means you continue engaging life where God has put you Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. It means you wake up and you read your Bible. You go to church on Sundays. You do your work as best as you can, Monday to Friday, to honor the Lord. You get married to someone you love. You have babies as the Lord provides. You open your home. You live generously and hospitably. And then one day, if the Lord prospers and blesses, you retire and enjoy life with your grandkids. Through it all, you keep repenting, and you keep trusting in Jesus. You keep worshiping him, loving him, and loving your neighbor. We're ordinary Christians living with gospel intentionality wherever he has called us to live. The hope of eternity that Jesus lays out for us on the other side of this chaos It makes us ridiculously resilient. Ordinary, very ordinary, but ridiculously resilient. So that weak as we are, we just keep going. This is the pattern for Jesus too. He's not laying out anything for us that he himself didn't do first. John 13, this is how Jesus' last days played out. John writes this, John 13, one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, the hope of eternity is breaking into his present. And what did it do? What did it fuel him to do? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. <laughs> the hope of eternity fuels his faithfulness in the present to keep doing the very thing he'd been doing all the way to the end. He was faithful to the end because he hoped in what was to come. Jesus is calling you to faithfulness now. Faithful in the context of craziness. Faithful. Faithfulness that's fueled by the hope of eternity. Faithful that looks like a normal life of an ordinary Christian loving God and loving neighbor, despite the chaos around us. May God make us faithful. Let's pray. Father God, our heart's desire is that we would be these people longing for your return, hoping for the salvation, the deliverance, the appearance of your glory. We long to see you. So fill us, even now as we respond in song, fill us with hope that Jesus is coming. Give us grace to not simply sing words because they're on a screen, but sing the words because they fill our hearts and they fuel our faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.